All right, guys, if you have a copy of God's Word or just want to follow along on the screen, we'll be in Revelation chapter 3 this morning, verses 14 through 22. So we're beginning a new year together, and this year uh, we're going to really be thinking about what it means to lean into radically ordinary hospitality. And so we're uh, some of the, the Fight Club leaders, MC leaders, will be diving into working on this this afternoon so you can pray about that. But what we mean by that, just to, to give a brief snapshot before we develop it more, is hospitality in the Bible is not welcoming uh, your good friends over and getting your fine china out. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, we live in the South. That's Southern hospitality. That is totally fine, not casting any condemnation on that. But in the Bible, hospitality is welcoming the stranger. In the Bible, hospitality is welcoming the outsider. What makes, so that's what, just quick on hospitality. Ordinary means is that this is just, you know, having meals with people, right? Shouldn't really be weird. Shouldn't be strange. Sadly, it is. It's just opening your life to people. And so our church, Matthew's Table Church, table right in the middle of the name, is this is really what we're all about. It's just making it ordinary that our homes would be open to other people, that our lives would be open to other people. Radically, why do we use that word? It sounds like a silly word. I don't actually like that word. It's a little overused. But the reason that we're using that word is because, sadly, it is, it is very radical to open your heart and your home to other people, particularly strangers. And by stranger, I don't mean that they're strange. I just mean it's the unknown. It's the uncomfortable. It's the person you might not normally do that with. And in our culture of great comfort idolatry, it is radical to do the simple act of opening your heart and your home to someone that you don't know or someone that is unknown. But where we're going to start this year is we're not going to start by, by really going there, but we're going to start with opening our own hearts and our own homes to Jesus. Because there, is a, there, there are parts, pieces, realities about Jesus that are a stranger to all of us. There is more Jesus for us to know. There is unknown Jesus in all of our lives. And then we're going to talk about welcoming the stranger that is us. We're going to take time this year to talk about that because there is a dark side, a shadow side in all of us that we may not want to deal with, that we may not want to know. There is a you maybe that you don't really know. And so we're going to think about what does it look like to welcome me? The me that I would just rather numb, distract, and detach from and not deal with. And then the main thing to get us there is so, so that then we can actually truly welcome the stranger. Truly welcome the unknown, the outsider, the distant person. And so this, this, we're talk, starting this series about welcoming Jesus. We're going to connect it to the spiritual disciplines because as, as uh, typical as that might seem to you, there is no other way that we can welcome more of Jesus into our lives if we don't give Jesus more time. And we, don't think about, and we have to think about what that looks like in view of the Word, in the view of 
prayer, in the view of the church, and in view of our own story. So let's read God's word and we'll dive in this morning. And to the angel of the church of Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. This is who's speaking to us today. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Let's read that again. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, we desperately need you. We don't need to hear uh, merely my voice. We need to hear your voice today. Father, we need you to show us who you are and who we are. Who we are apart from you and who we are in you. We need you to give us hope, God. Some of us might be hanging on by a thread today, it seems. But we thank you that you've given us the promise that your truth shall set us free. So we're asking today, God, that you don't merely give us an intellectual encounter with your word, but that you penetrate us through your word to the division of our hearts so that we can't leave without a renewed challenge and comfort to know you and to be the people you've called us to be as your church. We ask this in Jesus, sovereign, ruling, loving name. Amen. Well, some, some time ago when we began this journey of being a church that would open our lives up to people, that would open our, our hearts and our homes, someone advised me, if you're really going to have good... Uh, Good times with people, it's not so much about the plan, it's not so much about the preparation, you've got to get the right person there. So some of us know exactly what I'm talking about. You can have great food, you can have great ideas, but if you don't have somebody there who's fun, then you just kind of all sit around and stare at each other like, oh, okay, this was a nice idea. But the right person, if you get the right person or the right people there, you might not have even had a plan, and it can be the greatest encounter in your life because you figure out the food, you figure out what to do, because just out of this person is going to come joy. They, can't, they just can't live without there being joy. 
And so the, what I was advised to do is when you're doing this, you've got to make sure the first thing you do is you've got to get that person there. You've got to get those people there. And so as we think about life together as God's people, and we think about opening our hearts, opening up our homes, opening up our lives, the first question we have to ask ourselves this year is who is the number one person that we have got to make sure that we invite? And the answer is obvious, but the answer is not easy, and that's Jesus. We have got to make sure that we do not assume that we are giving Jesus the not just the welcome, but the number one invitation to every time we show up before God alone, every time we show up before God in our missional communities, every time we walk into any encounter in our lives, if we want it to be all that it's meant to be, then Jesus has got to be the number one guest, the number one invitation. If not, we will just simply go through the motions with this. We'll get up maybe or go to bed or during the middle of the day we'll open our Bibles and we'll just read the Word. And it will have little to no effect on our lives because there are unbelievers with PhDs teaching in universities who have no real relationship with Jesus Christ, but they can tell you and dissect to you what these words mean better than any of us in here could. But without Jesus being there, there is no real life change, there is no real joy, and we are not exempt from that. When we gather together in our family meals, in our fight clubs, in our spontaneous get-togethers, these can be nothing more than just social interactions, nothing more but empty structures, if Jesus is not intentionally welcomed. But the good news is, is that when he is welcomed, it changes everything. Because when you show up to God's word, if you're not just showing up to a book, but you're showing up to a person, it, it's, it's just a totally different experience. When you know that you're, you're called to have a meal with someone, whether that's family meal or in your everyday life, if you're just showing up to do something that you have to do because you feel like it's what your church expects of you, then yeah, you're just going to walk in with your head hung down thinking, I really don't want to be around these people. But when you intentionally know Jesus is going to be there, and He's welcome, He's at the center of the table, He's in the room, it changes everything. This letter to Laodicea is saying precisely this. Chris, you can click back to the, to the first slide in that, please. Is that we can have big invitations, we can have boastful visions and celebrations, and yet it be pitiable and poor if Jesus is at the outside knocking like, I know you guys are doing your thing, but hey, over here, they're doing good things. They're doing big things. The only problem is Jesus is on the outside. We've got to see that the call is not simply for us to perform Christianity. The call for us in all of these things is to experience a participatory communion with Jesus. As 
we think about what it means for us to, to own the name of our church, Matthew's Table Church, the reason that we use that name that's kind of weird and hard to explain to people is because we own this vision of a church with Jesus at the center of the table and then his disciples right there with him and then the outsider, the stranger, the outcast being welcomed to that table to see what it looks like for people to have their lives reoriented around the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. So we want to begin by looking at us as individuals, but also as a community, in view of how we welcome Jesus through his word. Because we must do this. He is the word. That's how he chose to reveal himself, as the word of God. In our text today, you'll notice that he says he is the faithful and true witness. That he gives us the words of the amen. That is the words of the one who is the fulfillment, the agreement, and the center of all that God has spoken. So how do we welcome Jesus through communing through his word? First, by asking the question, are we communing with Jesus or are we just coasting? Are we communing with Jesus or are we just coasting? Or for some of us, are we communing with Jesus or, or are we just checking out? So the first thing, the church must treat the word of God personally and not impersonally. So whom does this concern? Notice verse 14. The first thing is it's to the church to the angel of the church. Now, different people have different interpretations of what this means by angel. The word behind this just simply is messenger. Angelos, messenger. So it, some people think there's actually particular angels who oversee individual churches, which is pretty amazing to think about. That's actually probably the dominant view. But others think it's just it's saying to the messenger of that church, maybe the lead pastor of that church. But either way, this is a message to the church and through the church. From whom? The faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. We're called to see from the beginning here is that the truth that we give is not about pages, but it's about a person who's faithful and true. Who comes to give us hope because he is the beginning of God's creation. And this is a, a big deal. But it shouldn't be a big deal that leaves us overwhelmed in our guilt, shame, or fear. It should be a big deal that inspires us to know that Jesus comes to speak with us. And he comes to do it through his word. And because it's such a big deal to him, and we see his response to our casual approach. Verses 15 and 16. Jesus says, I know your works, you're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. What Jesus is saying here is not saying, I wish that you were either zealous and fiery in your love for me or nothing at all. Some of you may have heard that before, that Jesus is saying, hey, I'd just rather you be cold, distant, unbeliever, nothing altogether, or be all in. Which is it, all in or nothing? That may or may not be true, but that is not what this text is saying. What he's saying is cold or hot. It's that 
these waters, there were actually springs within this area of Laodicea and Colossae. And there were cool springs that refreshed you, but there were also hot springs that refreshed you. So Jesus is saying here, I, I wish that in some way you had a, a, a water source, a life source that was bringing fulfillment to other people and bringing a renewal in your own life. But they're neither. They're lukewarm. Neither hot nor cold. And so this is his response to that. I will spit you out of my mouth. That's, that's a pretty clear image. Is that casual Christianity makes Jesus want to vomit. We may be cool, calm, and collected, and comfortable. But this is how strongly Jesus feels about his church. This is how strongly Jesus feels about his relationship with you. And why does he feel so strongly about it? Verses 17 and 18 help us understand. It's because they're saying they're rich, they've prospered, they don't need anything, not realizing that they're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. It's saying that casual Christianity teaches the world and lives out a conviction that Jesus isn't really necessary for being the church. That we can be Christians and be cold, not refreshing cold, but be distant in our relationship with him. It makes church a tack-on activity the rest of our lives, and it makes Jesus a tack-on king or savior to the rest of our lives. It denies all that he's did, all that he's done, and all that he has made us and called us to be. And it ultimately spurns his love. Because he's calling them in verse 18 to come to him and to have true riches, to have true wealth, to have a true life, gold refined by fire, white garments that cover the shame of our nakedness. So many of us are trying to cover our shame and our guilt and our fear with other things. But Jesus is saying, I can actually do that. Salve to anoint your eyes, to actually see reality instead of playing pretend. In verse 18 and 19, we see even more how it spurns his love. He says in verse 18, in verse 19, 19 that is, those whom I love I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. When we hear someone say that you're, the way that you're living makes me want to vomit, some of us may take that as a cruel comment. But what Jesus is saying here is not, golly bum, you just totally, totally make me, you know, repulsive. You just repulse me. Now, Jesus is actually saying, it hurts me because I love you so much. It doesn't hurt me because I don't want you. It hurts me because I do want you. That's why even in spite of all this, we see Jesus is not running away, but he's standing at the door and knocking. Oftentimes we've used these verses in evangelistic encounters, applying them to unbelievers. 
And I'm not saying that's all, always wrong, but in this context, this is not Jesus speaking to unbelievers. Notice who he's speaking to. He's speaking to his church. This is a letter to the church. A church that has learned to do Christianity and church with Jesus not in the middle of the church. But instead of Jesus saying, forget you guys, he's there. He's knocking wherever you're at this morning as an individual. And you've closed him out of certain parts of your life or beginning to close him out of your life altogether. He is standing at the door and knocking. And what is he wanting to do? He's wanting to come in and eat with you. This is why we're saying this is where hospitality starts. Because Jesus isn't wanting to come in and get checked off your list of things that you do so you don't feel guilty. Because you grew up in the religious south and you just have this nagging guilt that you need to do some kind of Jesus thing. No, he wants to come in and sit down at your table and eat with you. This is amazing. It's not, first of all, about us not treating him like a checklist item. It's the amazing fact that he doesn't treat us like a checklist item. I mean, that would be good enough. He doesn't just want to get you to heaven. He wants to get in your heart right now and have a real relationship with you. In the book of Revelation, there's, we just don't have time to go into this, but Jesus is not simply presented as the all-ruling king, though he is. He's presented as, as this, as it were, an imperial lover. And Siri doesn't understand. <laughs> but, so let's explain it to Siri. What do I mean by this? If we look earlier in the book of Revelation, there's this, I've been studying this too, there's this great vision of who Jesus is. I encourage you to go read it in chapter 1. All throughout this book, it's showing that in light of all that's going on in the world and everything that's fallen apart in the lives of this first century church is that Jesus is on the throne. But the reality is, is it's not just that Jesus is the sovereign king over all. It's the fact that he zealously loves his people. And the book of Revelation doesn't end with Jesus conquering over all, although it does have that. It ends with a marriage supper. It ends with a feast of his love around a table with his people. The party of the ages. And the good news of the kingdom of Christ breaking in now is Jesus wants you to begin to get taste of that in your own heart. I remember one of the weird things in my life as a teenager when I was 17 years old and I mentioned this maybe before to some of you guys in some context is I, I had a, a girl that I'd really liked kind of one of these silly things you know at least for me it was and she cheated on me with one of my friends on the basketball team and I just remember uh, in the locker room one of my other friends describing all the details of that me and I remember really like getting sick I don't know if any of you guys have ever got so like emotionally 
sort of overwhelmed it made you feel like you wanted to vomit does that make any sense to anybody I mean I was mad and I wanted to take condemning action but really that wasn't what was making me sick it was making me sick to to visualize what all was being described to me by someone whom I loved and thought loved me as I thought about this text and I thought about how Jesus feels when he looks at us spurning his love, this is, this is what came to mind. But you know who is there for a 17-year-old kid in all of my sins and in all of my weaknesses? Is a few years before that is I was listening to Charles Stanley preach. Some of you know who that is. And he, and he had said, I challenge you every day for a month to write down, to, to read God's Word, and to write down what you read when you read it, and that's all. I just remember listening to that, and I did it. And without an over-exaggeration, I would say there has been nothing more important in my life than that. And in the midst of all that heartache and sorrow, of feeling so alone and feeling so, so hurt and feeling like I had no one to talk to, very imperfectly, I knew Jesus would be there. I didn't feel a thing. It wasn't about going to and having some big religious experience. It was that just read the word. I could just hear the truth. I could have a person who wasn't going to to abandon me, a person who wasn't going to cheat on me, and yet so many times in my life, I have been that person to Jesus. I have chosen other things, other priorities to commune with, to invest my heart into, to invest my emotions into, to give me satisfaction, to give me relief, to give me control. And when Jesus looks at me, the good news is, and when he looks at you, he, it makes him sick. But not sick because he hates you, sick because he loves you so much. And he wants to be with you. He wants time with you. He sees you spending time with all these other things. And all of us in here say, oh, I'm just too busy and I just don't have time. But we know at the end of the day, if we look at our schedules and we look at our priorities, we may be choosing to have a meal with real food that could be given up to have a meal with Jesus. He wants us. He's not a boss looking for us to clock in and clock out. He is a king lover who wants us to show up. What's amazing is that every time that we're caught cheating, he stays. He stays. He wants us. So all that is so important before we talk about these practicalities. Because we could just come in here and say, here's ten steps to better Bible reading. Here's how you have an effective quiet time or a you know, or, or set a common rule for your life to where you engage in what is traditionally known as the spiritual disciplines. But above all that, it's, it's about being with Jesus. 
He wants to be with us. He doesn't want to be a footnote, an asterisk. He doesn't want to be somebody that we squeeze into our schedule. He is the king of the universe, and he loves us. And many of us live miserable Christian lives because we just treat him like a tack on. So we come to his word to commune with him. So how do we do this also? Well, we have to come to his word once we get there. And we've got to come to be read relationally. So we've, there's a time and a place for Bible study. But our, our time in God's word has to be so much more than Bible study. Or again, we can just be like the, the, the atheistic Bible teacher in the university. And we're, we're, we're trying to meet with Jesus. And so we have to come to be read. And this is what Jesus does in our text. Notice, it's not just about them knowing him. It's about them actually hearing from him about who they are. That's going to scare some of us to death. This might be some of us don't, why we don't want stillness, silence, and solitude in our life. Because we may can be, we may be good as long as I'm, if I'm thinking, I'm being proactive. But to actually be still and to actually listen, that may cause, your anxiety is going to go through the roof when you begin to do that. This is why we have to have a view is that Jesus is not coming to crush us. He's coming to fulfill us. He knows us as well as he knew Laodicea. And he calls us to listen to not only what he has to say about himself, but what he has to say about you. I'm going to repeat that. This is really important. In this time that we come before God's word, we have to see he is not only trying to show us about himself, he wants to show us things about ourselves. That means that we're going to have to, to listen. I'm not saying listen that you're going to hear an audible voice. But you're going to listen for the spirit to do what the, the old theologians of old, the, the Luthers, the Calvins, the, all these all these people, the illumination of the Holy Spirit to shine the light of God's word into the darkness spots of our hearts. We end up a lot of time at ball fields or ball courts and I'm definitely not a perfect parent but it, it kind of sometimes irritates you a little bit when you see parents who are there but they're on their phones during the game. Because you're kind of thinking like, you're here, but you're not here. I, I remember uh, in a deeply spiritual period in my life watching a lot of The Simpsons. And I remember Homer talking to Marge. And as Marge sits there talking, it, it gives you a glimpse into Homer's mind of what he's hearing. And all he's hearing is blah, 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 blah. Blah, 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 blah. Right? He's listening, but he's not hearing anything. And there was a point in my life where this is what Bible reading was for me. It was like, I, even, even with good disciplines, right? It became, this is just something I do. It makes me feel good. So I commit a big sin, I'll read an extra chapter. Right? I'll sort of pay off my sin through doing a little extra Bible reading. You know, God will kind of get the scales even here, even though I thought I understood the gospel. And then I remember a point in my life, you know, to really even the scales, is I'll just read the Bible really doctrinally. 
You know, I'll just, you know, like, if, if the duty's not enough, the doctrine will get me the next leg. And then, even sadly, at certain points in my life, being a pastor in my story, it was, it was like, well, my time in the Word, well, it's sermon preparation. It was always about producing something. It was always about getting ready to perform something. But there's been no greater joy in my life than to find out that God's love for me is not based on my faithfulness in reading His Word. That He doesn't love me more when I read two chapters than when I read zero chapters. And what that actually did in my life when that gospel reality was, was born into my heart is it actually made me want to be with God more. Because it went from being a time where I was simply a servant paying off a debt to where I was a son spending time with my father. And not just time that I studied him to learn about him, but time that I actually got to know him. And I let him help me even get to know me. So we have to ask ourselves, are we showing up to God's word to be read? Are we reading our Bibles and Jesus is again outside knocking at the door saying, Hey, can I be a part of that Bible time? I've got some things I'd like to say to you. Quit using the Bible as a way to protect yourself from me. This is why we encourage when we come to God's Word, practical tip here, to begin with a, what we might call a prayer of presence. This could be just a simple one-liner. It could be a paragraph in your mind or written down to where you just say, I'm here. Jesus, I welcome you to speak to me through your word right now. I surrender myself to whatever you want to do. We pray things, examples, like Psalm 139 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. We, we think of verses like Hebrews 4.12 where it talks about the sharp two-edged sword. We say, God, penetrate. Show me my motives. Like Jesus prayed in John 17, he said, Sanctify them through my word because my word is truth. Clean me up, God. Change me. We pray that we might have encounters like Isaiah did in Isaiah 6 where we see the glory of the Lord, where we're humbled by the majesty of His reign, and then we walk away sent. And we can open our lives to this because of the gospel. For those of us in here who may be afraid that Jesus is going to leave us in our guilt, fear, and shame, we need to hear that He is the one who already knows that, who's already covered that. He may show us what we owe, but He's going to show us He's already paid for it. That we've already been saved from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and one day He will rescue us from the presence of sin. But this takes time. That time is not going to look for all of us the same in the different seasons of our life. But the fact that we have to have it is the only way it will take place. It's not legalism, it's love. So we must say, when in my life am I going to set a time to be present before God? 
to do this regularly, to not just check off I read something and hurry and answer some questions as fast as I can so it looks like I didn't fall, I got my job done, but to be present before Jesus and say, show me. For you, it may be the drive to work. For some of us, no, no shame here. It might be when you're in the bathroom. When you dads, I know you're all doing it, or men, you go in there and hide, right? It may be that's where, where it happens. Don't let the perfect be the enemy of the possible. Perfect, you set a time, place, and plan. You're going to be there with Jesus. You're going to meet with him as a higher priority than your work, than your job, because that is more important than your paycheck more important for your family than your paycheck for you to say well I can't do that I've tried for years to figure out what works for you and then lastly to read relationally in communion with him so to be read and to read this is the area actually where we're probably the most familiar with and so we can hit the quickest it's that Jesus wants us to not just show us ourselves, but he does want to show us himself. And the Bible says the only way that we are changed is by beholding his glory. So for all of the many different ways that we think, how can I improve my life? How can I improve my marriage? How can I improve my church? How can I improve my faithfulness and joy and all the fruits of the Spirit? The Bible says the way you do that is by spending more time putting your eyes on Jesus. Not just when you come to, to read his word, but as you live in your everyday life. And so this is why we, we use these questions that we use. Some of you aren't as familiar with these as others, but uh, I have it here is why I'm looking for it. Is we have these, these, these bookmarks you can put in your Bible. And these questions aren't to, to put you in some sort of legalistic straitjacket for how you can read your word. These questions are, are all highly relational. The goal is that we would read God's word to know God, to behold Jesus and to be changed by him. So when we come to his word, we first ask, what is God saying? And there should be pauses as we ask these questions, right? Not vigorous writing. What is God saying? If I were to put this in my own words to my own life, what does it say? Now going at this pace might mean you have to make your plan more simple. You may have to tackle verses instead of chapters. Then who is God? Who is God? What is he like? When I read this, what am I learning about who God is? Our fight club just went through the one that I was in through the book of Isaiah. And there were some days, the little box that I write in, it just couldn't even contain it. Man, God is all of these amazing things. What has God done is the next question. And what has he done in Jesus? Jesus tells us that all of the Bible is written to point us to him. In John 5, 39, he tells the Pharisees, he says, you think you know the scriptures, but it's the scriptures that bear witness to me. In 2 Corinthians 1, 20, Paul says, all of the scriptures find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. 
This takes a little work, but we work for things that are important and that we love and that we care about. To say, how does this passage of Scripture, whether it be in Genesis or whether it be in a gospel, how does it point me to, to how Jesus has fulfilled a promise? How does it point me to how Jesus lived this out better than I ever could or even these heroes ever did? How does this point me to my need of Jesus' death on the cross? How does this point me to the hope of the resurrection? How does this show me how he's reigning now? And this is powerful each day in our lives as we behold Jesus. And every day we hear, it is finished. We don't walk away from our time and our word without hearing the good news. And then we ask, who am I? This is where it really starts to hit close to home. Because all of us in here are believing lies about who we are every day. We're believing I'm worthless. I'm, I'm hopeless. We may be hearing other people say that. I might as well quit. We're thinking things like, you know what? I, Jesus would be better if I just got out of his hair. My missional community in my church would just be better if I got out of here. My family would just be better if I got out of here. We're all thinking all of these lies. Nobody approves of me. If people really knew me, they would reject me. We have the opportunity every day, regardless of how we feel, to open God's word and hear the reality of who we are in Christ. And one thing that is so telling in my experience, not only in our church, but churches that ask this question, is when we ask that question, no matter how many times I say it or other people say it, who am I? Most people want to go negative. This question isn't who am I in my sin. This question is who am I in Jesus? So if you want to go there for a few minutes on who you are outside of him, don't go there the longest. The enemy wants to rub our face in that. That is not who we are. And then, what if I believe this? Can I imagine what my life would look like if I really believe that? And then the last question we ask that really ties these things together is why is the Spirit revealing this now? And we've just got to pause. We believe in the sovereignty of the Holy Spirit. It is no accident you're reading whatever you're reading that day. If we really want to meet with Jesus, then we need to say, why did you want to show me this today? Because there's a reason. And we need to be willing to stay there if we're to be changed. If we're to experience the life where we dare to believe what Jesus says in verse 21, that we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. Then his word has to be at the center of our walk. I'm not overstating this. Yourself, your, your own emotional health, your home life, and our church will only be as strong and will only be as welcoming and hospitable in our, in our lives and our mission as we welcome Jesus into our everyday lives. You can be a bonehead like me and drive your vehicle without oil in it maybe sometimes. I don't know that I have did that, but it's very well possible.
and it'll work for a while, but it's going to break down sometime. And not only will it strand you, it's going to leave others stranded. But if you just keep your car serviced, if it's a good car, it'll run for years. It might not look like a lot, but you'll have something to give. This is what we're talking about. Regular communion with Jesus through his word. Hospitable hearts to the presence of Jesus through his word so that we continue to run as a church hospitable to others with the gospel. Father, we thank you for the good news of Jesus. And we pray now that as we come to your table, that we would not merely partake of the bread and the cup as mere symbols or even mere objects, but that we would enjoy participation with you. And may it free us. We pray this in Jesus' name.